Welcome to another episode of the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast. I'm Donald Dennis, and I'm here with Stephanie Fry. Hi! Today we're going to talk about our experience at one of our regional conventions here in South Carolina, which was ScarabCon. Ooh, this was my first ScarabCon. Oh, uh, I'm a repeat performer, and uh, I guess the way we go, we actually are performers, now that I think about it. Oh my goodness, we are. Yeah, because GMing, escape rooming. Yep, so... We went, uh, we were able to convince our boss that it was absolutely essential that we both go and uh, we shut down our teen room here at the Waccamaw Library, wandered over to uh, Columbia, South Carolina, and we did a lot of advertising for ShushCon, so there were a lot of flyers and buttons and uh, bookmarks handed out for just such a thing. Stephanie basically ran escape rooms for anybody who passed by who wasn't doing things. Yep. Well, actually, you had to sign up. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. You did have sign up, but you had a nice poster, and it was all crayon. You had a room to yourself. I did, which was pretty great and bad at the same time, right? Yes, and bad at the same time. Yes. All right. So, um, a little bit about uh, ScarabCon as it's been going on for a few years. Uh, I don't know when it started. This may be the eighth one. I'm I'm uncertain. Uh, but I've been going for about four years. They do board games, role-playing games, miniatures games. Um, I think I saw magic cards out. I'd be surprised if there wasn't magic cards. They also do LARPing, right? Uh, they do LARPing for the children. I, I haven't seen any adult LARPing um, or much. And I didn't see any LARPing cosplay this year, but it might have been because of the temperatures were so weird inside and outside that uh, those who had relatively skimpy costumes didn't want to wear them outside and those who had... Heavy ones didn't want to wear them in the role playing area. So I, I did see all the kids all larped up. Yeah, for they the- were so cute in their little Harry Potter garb. Yeah, and so uh, Alicia, who's been on the podcast before, um, she's actually a librarian in Columbia, and she helps with the show. So we got to see and chat with her a little bit. I keep trying to convince her to come on the show again. So if she listens, maybe she will respond. Let's let's talk about the escape room stuff. Uh, how, how did that go, and, and what was sort of the format that you ran there at the con? So, I ran a bunch of 30-minute escape rooms and one 45-minute escape room. And the format was, people signed up ahead of time. I ended up basically filling up all of my slots on that Friday. Um, with maybe, like, one or two slots, you know, opened up here and there. And so, what would happen is, you know, I'd give them the spiel, then they'd do the room for 30 minutes... To 45 minutes, and then I would set up in like 15 minutes, and then I'd basically be ready for my next group and do it all over again. Right. So you had a, a cushion in there for folks who, uh, you know, they didn't make it in time, but you still wanted them to have the experience of completing the, the whole thing, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it was great because since I, I had that time, if they were like, oh, we ran out of time, I was able to be, you know, check my clock and be like, okay, just go ahead and complete it because- you know, we've got time. So if you want to try to finish, go for it. And so when you said you were running four rooms, it wasn't each room once. You ran for eight hours a day or ten hours a day, rather, for three days. Well, I ran I ran ten hours the first day, but I did like, I think, an hour set up both those times. So maybe that's more like 12 hours. Um, and then I, I did five hours of escape rooms on Saturday and on Sunday. All right. And so because instead of um, some, I've been to some other conventions where they have the same escape room running the whole time. And those you frequently see that there is occasionally dead times where they don't have 
groups waiting to go in. There was for yours. However, I think you had a lot of repeat business. The same people doing the escape rooms each one of the four times that you changed changed out your room. Oh, I did. I did have a, a lot of groups that I'm like, oh, I recognize you guys from the last three runs and that kind of stuff. Uh, they got really into it. So most often, if I had somebody who did it, they were like, can I sign up for the other slots? And, you know, we didn't really have anything against it this time, but I did have a lot of people who also weren't able to sign up because of that. So, you know, maybe next time it might be better to have just like two rooms instead so that we get more unique people going through. Right. And to be fair, we had a backlog of rooms that we'd created previously, so it was a little easier to do because we didn't have to create anything specifically for ScarabCon. Right, but transport and storage during the con was madness. Oh, yeah, that was an unholy pain. Um, fortunately, I keep a supply of big fracta bags and stuff on hand. Uh, yeah, oh, if you ever have to transport your game collection, um, and if IKEA is still making them, they have these big zippered bags called fracta bags that are made out of uh, really crinkly sort of styrene. I don't know what it is, but it's blue, and... Um, it does a great job because it's got the square corner bags and they're and it's really large. They work very well. Um, I recommend them entirely because we fit an entire room in one of those bags. We did, yeah. We we practically had a bag per room. Although, uh, one of the rooms I had to split up a whole bunch because we didn't have room in the back seat of my fiance's truck, and it was raining. Uh. So we trash bagged it. And that worked. So be well aware if you are transporting escape room stuff and you have, you know, anything that leaks, like, of the weather. Right. So size and scale is pretty pretty important. You know, so uh, we've, I've been thinking about what else we could do with the escape rooms. And you are the authority, of course, because you were there with them the whole time. I just, I wandered around and, and heckled people while they were trying to, uh, to, actually, that's not true at all. I walk into the room and I see the folks doing a room, especially if it's one that I worked on, and I'm like, all right, you guys just said let's shut off the lights so that we can shine the black light on things, and they would shine it on everything except for the stuff that needed the black light shining on. Oh, Donald was amazing to watch during these time periods. It's like, no, no, you're killing me here. His face so, just sort of contorting the visible pain. Yeah. Well, especially when one of the guys picked up one of the boxes and shook it, and it had uh, – it had. Is a, it the clay a, tablet? It had the, the fragile clay tabra, tablet and three fake eggs in it. And I had no idea how any of them would sort of survive that. Fortunately, they all did. So I guess we we overbuilt, I guess. But uh, wow, that was, I was like, yeah, okay, thanks for doing that. <laughs> yeah, well, because now we know. Uh, I, you know, I feel like you need to be really careful about fragile things, you know, with escape rooms. Because people are going to pick things up. They're going to they're gonna mess with things. They're going to want to move them around. It's just like... A fact of the format. Right. Now, what I was really impressed with is that um, the, especially when I came in later and I was seeing the same groups again, that I didn't hear them saying, oh, this is how we did this puzzle in the past. Let's do that. They didn't, I never got the feeling like they felt that they were getting the same puzzles over and over again. You know, and we might have used a couple of them. I feel like we used a lot of the sort of same, uh, not puzzles, but sort of the same methods of solving puzzles. Uh, well, they certainly did move like a, a better organized machine. They did. Uh, I feel like, you know, they sort of trained themselves to solve the puzzles through the the con. Yeah. So anyway, that, that was that was pretty neat. Uh, I know that, 
you know, there are some institutions where I go to a published professional escape room thing and I'm like, oh, they're using this knock puzzle right here. I know what they're doing. Oh, this is a magnet puzzle, just like the magnet puzzle they used in the last room. And and we we have no resources, all right? Most of our, our rooms are created for less than 150 I Actually, I guess the base set for the breakouts is 150 bucks now. So for less than 200 or 250 bucks, we create you know some pretty nice rooms. But it doesn't all feel like that, oh, I'm assembling these parts exactly the same way as they were assembled in another room. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, so any last thoughts? What else would you like to do? Is there anything you would like to do for the escape rooms next time or even for ShushCon? Yeah, I'd like to have signs built that they can like take pictures with afterwards because that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that especially for our advertising purpose, if we'd had a banner that said ShushCon, you know, escape room brought to you by ShushCon or whatever, and they could take pictures in front, front of it that had signs that said, hey, we succeeded or we almost got there, mm-hmm. that it would have been great. Uh, as it was, how did you incorporate advertising that we were, uh, it was a library event that was brought into Columbia? Well, basically, I put all of our Shushcon buttons into the prize box. And then once they opened it, I would give them the spiel. Yeah. So at the final, at the end of the event, uh, you know, they opened up that final chest because we're really breaking in, not out. Yeah. Um, we didn't give them gold coins. We didn't give them chocolate. We gave them an advertisement. And, you know, that signaling really did work, I think, because there were kind of a lot of psychology things there, I feel like, because buttons are kind of coin-shaped for one thing. Ooh, yes, yes. And also the fact that, oh, these sort of coin-shaped things, we just won, so they were always very excited about grabbing them up. Yeah, yep, yep. I saw people wearing multiples, so I knew that they'd gone through your room a couple of times. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't see, like, a whole bunch of people wearing multiples, though. Maybe one or two people. Most people were pretty good about, like, oh, I did one of the previous ones, so I'm not going to grab one this time. Well, excellent, excellent. Um, I think the other thing is that it might be, you know, we've done some, hey, we're just making puzzles and not put them into escape rooms. Um, so if there's someone there helping you, you know, you could have something for the folks who are waiting. But, yeah, that's not a thing you can do with just one person. I also feel like I understand now why most often when I see people working in actual escape rooms, they work in teams. Because I usually see, like, two people, like, running escape rooms. Right, right. Yeah, well, and, and for that, it's if they've got multiple rooms, then they're also watching different rooms for clues and that kind of stuff. But, yeah, before folks get started, there's that, I'm sure, safety thing. Hey, we've got strangers coming into our business, you know, and then there's uh, don't go crazy. Right, exactly, because I think by the, honestly, by the second set of them on the day, I had hit a point of, like, isolation talking to myself. Oh, well, I, I wish you had, had, you know, let me know, because we hang out here all the time. Yeah. So I, I was like, well, you know, I'll stop in and see if you need a, a thing of water, uh, you know, or you need a bathroom break, but I wasn't just hanging out there because it seemed like you were into what you were doing, and. I didn't know the psychological trauma you were having. Oh, I figured you were busy because I knew you guys were running like games all weekend. Oh my goodness! I I was, uh, which that sounds like a great point to trans, uh, you know, transfer to that conversation. Oh wait, 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 though. Congratulations! Uh oh, yes for the uh, for the Iron Fair. No, not Iron GM. That's that was last year's event. Um, they uh, one of the things that our friend John Manus, who's been on the show previously has done is he is for the past years and years organized a competition for game masters and it was previously called iron gm and then he says well you know 
uh, for whatever reasons, lawyers, he had to change the name. And now um, it is the Pharaoh's Challenge. Yeah. And uh, after years of coming in second in the Iron GM, uh, I, I managed to pull off a victory. Nice. I guess all I had to do was come. Yeah, yeah. You could be there to dissuade all the other GMs from doing doing well. Because you got second place. So, I did. And I guess maybe um, maybe I would have managed to pull it off if you weren't there, unless that fourth other GM who was in the competition uh, was better than you. But I don't see that happening. Nah. Nah. How did the Pharaoh's Challenge go? What did we know ahead of time? So what we knew ahead – we actually managed to guess the system ahead of time. Right. So – uh, he sent out a thing saying, who wants to be in this? And we responded and that we didn't know what role-playing system we were going to have. So like D&D or Pathfinder or Fate or whatever. We had no idea. Uh, and then he told us he was going to assign us the, the system that also came with the setting. And they were going to provide us with um, some scenario hooks that we needed to use and maybe other things like NPCs. We didn't know what all we were going to get. And then he put out a hint as to what the system may actually be later in. He did, and uh, so I, I whipped the audio around backwards, and Stephanie's like, I wonder if this word era means anything, because he, he kind of- He had, had a, a lot of emphasis on that word. He had some, Yeah, he had some weird emphasis on it, and I didn't catch that, because I was still too busy trying to figure out if that clue was any different than the one that was on the website, because it sounded almost the same, right? But uh-huh. I guess when it's spoken, the emphasis is different. Um, but you got it right. You nailed it first out of the gate because i was like yes this company who makes the air thing they've been on the show like five times <laughs> on his uh, scarab swarmcast podcast and i think they're shades of vengeance is that what shades of vengeance uh interesting name for a company i guess i think knowing the system actually helped just a little bit not in planning the game i made a whole bunch of plans and completely scrapped them yeah um, but it helped in just like Stuff I didn't necessarily have to learn on the spot. Right, right, right. And so um, I learned a little bit about the system, right? Which is basically uh, you take the your stat and you take a skill and that's how many dice you roll and here's how you determine your successes. And I was like, okay, that's all I need to know. Pretty much. Which was not all I needed to know. No. Um, <laughs> uh, because the version that I had was one that was still in playtest, um, which I think... In, in some ways, it hindered, but in other ways, it helped because not all the rules that I needed were actually in the book. Mm-hmm. So even though it stressed me trying to find them, I think the fact that I could just sort of play them how I needed to, uh, you know, so it was kind of a, a good and bad sort of thing, right? I think it balanced itself out. Um, but we got to play around with that. My, my NPC was basically um, a little old lady with a time machine. My system was era, their su- whatever their superhero version is. I think it's empowered. Empowered, yeah. And uh, my story had to do with a book that was corrupting people and uh, making, giving them powers. And the more the evil stuff they did, the more power they got until it consumed them. And um, so I got really lost in the middle of my scenario. I was like, I don't really know what to do. So they went to the library where... The main bad guy of the story had bought this book in the Friends of the Library book sale um, because he was not allowed to check books out of the library anymore because he had like a $47 fine <laughs> because he'd kept Lawrence of Arabia out, you know, the, the videotapes out for so long <laughs> that uh, blah, blah, blah. So instead, he had snuck the book out of the local history room and into the Friends of the Library book sale collection so that he could then buy it at the Friends of the Library book sale. 
And uh, one of the guys said, oh, I want to help them collect those fines. Can I sign up and be part of your enforcement unit? So he's part of the Dewey Decimators, uh, whose job is to now go around and help libraries collect fines. Nice. And uh, between that and Mrs. Doubtfire and a time machine, I, I, I managed to pull it off. But, but it was really interesting because I ran a combat up front and the guy who then got into the Dewey Decimator thing he looked like he was not having any fun, right? Uh-huh. Right up front, he was like, oh, I'm going to do this. And he couldn't figure out what to do tactically so much. Um, it just He didn't look like he was enjoying it. And then I flipped the role-playing switch to get you know, things back into under control where I didn't have to worry about the rules so much. And he lit up. And the fun that he was having, I think, was contagious with the rest of the table. And so that was, that was pretty neat. Excellent. The system I got was Era the Consortium. And it's like sort of a sci-fi system. I've never actually run sci-fi before this. So that was really fun. Hmm. Well, you never run sci-fi. Oh, wait, wait, wait. That's right. I did run that one Dread game. Yeah. I was going to say Okay. You... I never had to make up a sci-fi scenario. Ah, okay. Gotcha. Uh, well, what was it? Arthur C. Clarke who said that sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That's about what I figured. So I'm like, let's just do that and call it. Uh, the stuff I had to include was I had to include a childlike AI that had, that had basically taken over a whole bunch of satellites as well as the like orbital weapons system. Okay. That sounds like right, right up your alley right there. It it super was, um, because I set it up so that, you know, the previous years that the AI had been quiet, it had basically been analyzing the internet and their forms of entertainment. And so it had grown a fondness for commercials. So anytime the NPCs sort of said any keywords, it would like just start running into a commercial. I think one of my favorite parts in that game actually was when they first met the AI and the AI's like, will you name me? And they had decided they had fallen in love with the name Steve. And so they were like, <laughs> we're going to name you Steve. It's going to be great. You could be part of Team Steve. And the AI is like, hmm, calculating, thinking about this. No, that name is stupid. You will call me this. <laughs> and that's when they knew it was a bad guy. Exactly. Um, so it was your vast experience with anime and, and manga, uh, do you think it helped you run that at all? Oh, I think it definitely helped me run that. Uh, that game got really crazy, though, just because they were on a 48-hour deadline. Mm. Uh, until the planet got nuked, and basically they decided that they actually wanted to wait out the 48-hour deadline. So they weren't heroes? No. They were kind of supposed to be, Mm. but that's not how the players ended up playing them. Interesting. Which, it's like, it happens, let's roll with it. So I think one of the reasons we both you and I did so well was because we had a plan to sort of get their buy-in on the world that we were running in from the beginning, which was we've both run Funnel World or played in Funnel World or things where the players get to help create what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. And so I had my players sort of create the town in which all of this was going on. And so they named the town, which was Perplexity, um, and... I think that was what it was. I'll have to check the map. Um, oh, wait. Wasn't it Paradoxity? Oh, that's right. It was par- Paradoxity. By the end, I think it was Perplexity. But uh, <laughs> yes, they named it uh, Paradoxity. 
And, you know, there was, you know, the best thing about the town was, hey, there was this science lab that was doing these things. And then I said, okay, what's the worst thing about the town? Like, oh, well, when the science lab was doing these things, it opened a bunch of portals to other worlds. And like, oh, okay. Um, but they had no real, in the end, it ended up that they were college students. Um, and it was, this was their like club on campus. And so they didn't have their own hangout. Instead, they were at the university there in, in Paradoxity and, that uh, that that was it. That was their clubhouse. Was some room on campus, and they were trying to prove themselves to be actual heroes. So it wasn't super heroic in any way, shape, or form. But it was they went, they wanted to be super heroic, and so they had their instead of having an arch enemy team, they had that other group of zero superheroes in town who thought that they were better than them. Nice. For mine, I ended up letting them basically draw a planet. Uh, and so they drew out continents and then they explained to me like what the economy was like on each continent. And, uh, it, it got really insane because at one point they decided the, the planet was flat and that what was holding it together was an ice ring. And. Oh, n being nuked nearly out of existence couldn't be good for that ice ring. No, no, it absolutely wasn't. Actually, what happened was they did wait out the nuke. That melted the ice ring, and all of the water of the planet ended up just, like, pooling to the other side. Okay. Yeah. And that, and, yeah, after it got nuked, like, I just, they went to, they were like, we're going to look over the edge of the planet, and they see the other side, and so I just took the map and just completely flipped it, like, physically, and nice. I was like, okay, welcome to the opposite of that world. <laughs> I saw the compass on your map. I was, I was kind of concerned. Is it because we had the directions north, south, west, and Dennis? Yeah, yeah. I was like, why is why is your compass pointing at me? It's like, I mean, I know I need to lose a little weight, but seriously. I, I don't even remember who put that as a thing because I, I don't think – I think the only thing I drew on the map was the uh, the satellites. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. How much did you, did you use what they had put on the map? Because – we used a lot of what they had put on my map, which I think sort of helped because one of the things that you were scored on was railroady versus improv sort of things versus, you know, pantsing it, right? I, I only used stuff that they actually put on the map, and I let them decide where they wanted to go on the map. I think the most railroady I got at one point was just, oh, you find a satellite that, satellite that tells you you need to go to Kansas, which is apparently the origin of all things here. Huh. I blame Clark Kent. <laughs> and that that's as railroady as I got. Inter I wonder if there was a middle ground that they were looking for. Because we don't know what – we still don't know exactly how we got scored or why I won. Yeah. Hopefully we'll find that out. But it could be that maybe you needed to have something that felt like there was a direction that you were trying to get them to go, but without forcing them. Right. And know, I don't know. It may just have been like I let them do a lot of what they pleased. Because mm. I was like, you know, I want you guys to have fun. Because at this point, I'm so tired. Let's just all enjoy ourselves. At one point, uh, one of the heroes was trying to take down one of the bad guys. And I was like, you can't kill him out now. This is the first act. Um, <laughs> and so I came up with a way finally for him to get away because she was exceptionally competent in, ca in combat. Um, and I really thought that that was sort of going to cost me. But uh -huh. apparently it didn't. So uh, I, I did have the, uh, the luck of one of the people that... Or actually, two of the people who were playing with me, I had run games for before. Um, 
And so actually maybe I, I may have run, run for everybody at my table before. So they sort of knew a little bit of how I was doing things. So that could have put them into that mindset a little better. Maybe. Because so if you'd have been running games earlier during the convention instead of escape rooms, that <laughs> might that might have helped you out. But I was I was also very tired by that point. So I you know and that that was the one event I didn't actually push Shushkan at really. Same. I I think I was just too busy trying to focus in on what was and I was sick at the time too. Yeah. <laughs> you can hear from both of us that uh, we are worn down a little bit at this point, and uh, uh, yeah, you had other biological issues that. Uh, I really did. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, what other games all did you run? Yeah, I started off with uh, Paranoia, because Paranoia is one of those where you're sort of allowed to kill off the player characters multiple times, because they have six lives, like in a video game. And the computer is their friend, and wants them to uh, wants them to be happy, um, even though the computer may not exactly understand what happy is, or how you get there from here. Uh, but, uh, so, I, I had two scenarios prepped, and I ended up running... The same scenario twice because the second group of people for my second game, they said, we just signed up because it's paranoia and they hadn't played through the first one. And I was like, okay, well, you have the choice of coming up with the one that I brought a concept of and I restructured two days ago and haven't completely fleshed out, or you can do the one that I ran last night. And they're they're like, well, we don't care. And so I was, it was 8 a.m. So I went with the one that was already done. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Oh, I understand that feeling. 8 a.m. games are just like. It did surprise me which one of my games didn't fill. It was my midday, or no, it was my evening Call of Cthulhu game was the one that just didn't fill. What? That's crazy. My 8 a.m. Call of, or Trail of Cthulhu, not Call of Cthulhu, my 8 a.m. Trail of Cthulhu filled. My 8 p.m. Call of Cthulhu game didn't fill. That's the first time I've ever had a Cthulhu game not fill in the evening. Huh. Which, what day was the 8 a.m.? It was Monday. It was, wow. Maybe... I wonder if part of it is just, you know, the people who are still there and looking for stuff to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Mary, the organizer of the uh, of the non-organized um, play role-playing games, she's the one who, um, who, who basically got us to do role-playing games and stuff. And so she sat in. And I had uh, a gentleman who'd sat in on one of my paranoia games. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, he joined me. And this was a completely different experience for him compared to our paranoia game. Uh, and then we had a couple other folks. And so it was great, great fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I ran a lot of scenarios that I hadn't completely written out. I was like, oh, here's some ideas for this and that. And so I did sort of get to do with the players what they wanted to do. You know, also one of my Dungeon World scenarios didn't make. But that was a midday one, which was also kind of strange. But that was before Darren Miller took off for, for foreign climbs. So I think people were uh, were getting into his games before they before he left. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I got to run some kids' tracks. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that real quick before kids show up here. I ran Perlock Holmes, which I adored. Um, it's basically just Sherlock Holmes, except all of the characters are cats. And so I got to make cat puns constantly. Now, you say Perlock Holmes is blah, blah, blah. You mean you created a game called Perlock Holmes? Yes. I, I used the, the Fate uh, Accelerated system for it. So you settinged it then. You 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 crafted the setting. Yeah. So I just just crafted the setting, and it was it was a blast. We did have an issue at one point because one of the kids had kind of decided that oh, this character is guilty, like no matter what. And eventually, the other kids like were like, "No, none of the clues are pointing this way." Nice. Was that the guilty one? No. Oh, good on you. 
Um, I, I also had a lot of fun because the the culprit ended up being like a Perlock fanboy. Mm. So part of the whole thing was like this fanboy gets a call from Meow Riardi and is like you're part of this story and oh my I would do anything. Right, right. And then he's gonna have Sherlock Holmes hunting him, which is just Oh, the best ever, right? Yes. It was so funny, too, because at one point, uh, Perlock Holmes comes in, and the guy just, like, faints, and the kids lost their minds. <laughs> um, and then I did a Pokemon game, which the kids also enjoyed. The, like, both of those were pretty full. Um, mm. And those were on Sunday or Saturday? Uh, they were on... They were on Monday. Or Monday. That's right. Monday morning. Yeah. Uh, and the Pokemon one, basically, the kids had to... Uh, rescue Pokemon from Team Rocket by breaking into their hideout. And I absolutely just used some of the maps from the games. Well, and I think that is an excellent example of, especially when you're not going to publish a game, uh-huh. of saying, you know, I'm going to use the resources that are available to me to make this work more easily. That you knew there was a Pokemon Center. You knew there was a, ga- you know, uh, a casino. You know that there are maps for all of these things. And since you're so steeped in that lore, and I understand the kids loved that as well. Oh, they did. They had a blast. We even had the, uh, what are they? The, there's like these arrow panels that will just send you shooting off in different directions. And so there was a sort of puzzle element for them to solve, and they just loved it. Nice. Uh, I managed to hide stuff with a bunch of like sheets of paper, so the map was slowly revealed to them. Oh, well, rock on. That sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, and it's not one I could have played because it was for kids only. That's true. I think you had to be like 14. Um, and we had a Clefairy use metronome and judgment came up and the kids lost their minds. Nice. So. Well, I think we have uh, patrons showing up to use the teen room right now. So we're going to wrap this up for now. And you'll hear a little bit more about uh, Scarab, I'm sure, on future events. Um, and also, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it on the On RPGs podcast. I'm Donald Dennis. And I'm Stephanie Fry. And you've been listening to the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries, a podcast produced in association between Inverse Genius and the Georgetown County Library System. For more information about the show and the people who create it, you can head over to InverseGenius.com and also find out more about our other podcasts like Onboard Games on RPGs, on Miniatures Games, the Inverse Genius Podcast, and the Room Escape Divas. If you would like to be on the show or have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us at schoolsandlibraries at gmail.com and let us know. We do have our episodes booked out for several weeks in advance, so if you have something time-sensitive, you will want to contact us as early as possible.